Hello, everybody, and welcome. Today, I have a special, special, special guest because Sarah Telashevsky, all the way from Australia, was the very, very first interaction I ever had with the Nurtured Heart Approach. Um, I was working in a school, and she trained my colleague's husband. And she came to work all excited about what her husband was talking about, and it just blew my mind. And so that was my very first window into Nurtured Heart. And I didn't pursue it for probably for seven, eight years, but that was definitely the first, first, first thing I ever heard. So, Sarah, I'm ever thankful for you and the work that you've been doing for many more years than me. Um, and I would love for you to just introduce yourself to our audience and um, tell us who you are and what you do. Okay, my name's Sarah Vela Teleshevsky. No, I'm known as Sarah Vela or Sarah. I live in Australia. Um, I have been using Nurtured Heart Approach since 2009. Um, before I was even trained, I, um, I worked with a couple of families in crisis with incredible results. I did my, my first training in 2010, and then I've done another two or three after that. I've been instrumental in changing or impacting the lives of many, many people. Um, I'm a teacher by profession. I've opened a school for children who don't fit into mainstream. I tried twice. Once it lasted for four years, but we ran out of funding. Second time, it only lasted nine months and we couldn't get enough students to, because it was a little bit alternative. And here in Melbourne, people don't like alternative. They're very um, conservative. But um, my heart is still in education and I spend a lot of my time, spend a lot of my time working with teachers and even with school admins when I get, when, you know, when I can convince them to hear what I have to say. And I've impacted a lot of children within the classrooms, within the schools and outside of them, of course, at home as well. So I work with parents, teachers and anyone else who listen. I love that. And, and your impact has gone far further than you could ever imagine because every person listening to this podcast and any person I've worked with is a result of, of your work. So that's far. Um, and then there's all the people you work directly with. So what a gift. Um, it's exciting to have you here. I would like to ask you to take us way, 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 way back to before 2009. Um, and however far back you'd like to go before that of, um, you know, what led you, what were the circumstances that led you to um, pursuing was it just an interest in education that you always had? Was it your personal life? What brought you to pursue this, this line of work or this passion? Okay, I don't know where to begin with this answer. So I'm going to give you a, a little bit of a tapestry. Because like with anything important in life, there are usually diff various different factors that bring it together. The first thing was, of course, I was a difficult child. As many people who struggle with kids are. I was a difficult child. I wasn't... Um, I wasn't overtly difficult. I was subversive, you know, like I was, I was, you know, I got into trouble and I did naughty things and I, and I got away with murder when no one was watching. And I was, I was also, I must say, I was very, very ADHD, which is probably why I was difficult. But of course, in those days, there was no such thing as ADHD. And I, don't, I think there still isn't, but that's another story. I was gifted. I was, I didn't know it. I was bored out of my mind in school. I didn't know it. I did know I was bored, but I couldn't figure out why. And I was looking for action all the time. 
so I had that bank background, but that didn't come into play till many, many years later, as far as my understanding. What did happen was very early on in my life, I was probably about 12 or 13, when I wrote an essay. English was one of my strong subjects, which is not typical of ADHD, but it was typical of me. And I used to love to write. And I actually wrote a book, which we'll come to later on, I suppose. Um, but um, at any rate, I wrote an essay on everything wrong with education, as it, stood, as it stood back there in the 1970s and still does now, unfortunately. And I put it away with all my, you know, all my special drawings and all my very creative ideas. And I put it in a, in a, in a backpack somewhere and forgot about it. And about five or six or maybe seven years ago when we were moving house, I found it. I found this backpack. I was very curious to find out what, what I did when I was 12, 13, 14 years old. What was I dreaming about? And I found this document. And I was astounded that my ideas have not changed at all. And my basic premise was that, that um, from years five or six or seven upwards, school's a waste of time. And I still think so, but don't tell anyone. <laughs> Except for the social aspect. You know, you learn how to read and write and spell, hopefully, if you're lucky. No, a lot of people don't. Not very well, anyway, especially not the spelling. And you learn basic maths and you learn basic social skills, which are more important than anything else. And everything else is fluff. So the thing is that I did go into teaching. I always wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to change the system. I wanted to change the world. Let me tell you about Hondas and Ferraris. A Honda is a kid that's pretty easy to handle. A Ferrari is a kid with super, super energized and quite difficult, if not extremely difficult to handle. A Honda's easy to fix when it, when it breaks down. A Ferrari costs a lot of money and is, and is complicated to fix. I was definitely a Ferrari. But the funny thing was that when in my teaching career, and I was drawn to it by a force beyond my, my, myself, I was always attracted to the Ferraris, to the difficult kids, to the kids who were challenging. The kids who weren't your, you know, the kid who does what they're told and, and, you know, you know. So I'd come home sometimes in tears, but exhilarated at the same time because I had something to, to, to grapple with. I had someone to, to fight with in a way. I don't know. At any rate, for some reason, I was attracted to difficult kids and we had our, our lingo, our, our, our some kind of our understanding. And I've developed a little bit of a, of a, of a, um, of a reputation. Like one, one year a school gave me a class full of all their impossible kids. There are only six or seven of them, but it was like there were 50 of them. And I must say I enjoyed it. Another time I was doing um, right of entry teaching. What's a release, release hour teaching? And I love the idea that the kids were coming in from all kinds of backgrounds. And they didn't want to learn. They would want to have fun. I said, that's cool. And I was quite at home with that because I didn't want to learn either. And I actually got developed a relationship with them. So that's kind of my beginnings. Yeah, well, I'll just say that I relate to every, to so much of what you're saying. It's so funny. I found a paper that I wrote in, uh, it was in seminary, so post high school, um, a paper that I wrote, a speech actually that I had to write. And I wrote the problems with education and what good education should look like. And I even had it in three parts, like the three stands in the nurtured heart approach. And I had no, I did not know it at all, but I looked back at it years later and I was like, I knew the whole time. And I absolutely relate also to just being so attracted to those 
um, Ferrari kids who just, there's something so alive about them. And it's just, yes, exhilarating is such a cool word. And oh, I'm with you all the way. ADHD, all of it. Gifted. I don't know. I didn't, I don't have any of the diagnosis, but um, I, I, I have them all. I, I never all got diagnosed, but I see, you know, I see the kids that I treat, that I work with. I, and, you know, <laughs> they, you know I, yeah. I have, I do have a hard time convincing the parents that there's nothing wrong with their kids. I say, there's nothing wrong with your child. He or she is wired differently. That your child is born to be a leader. They're going to be very hard. It's going to be very hard for them to be followers. So um, when they when they hear that, they sort of kind of get it, but it takes a lot of convincing. Yeah. So, I was um, just listening to a podcast and the guy said, um, unreasonable people change the world. So stay unreasonable. I don't know exactly. if, if unreasonable it's is absolutely true. Use, but it's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So tell us about about the timing, you know, you coming to Nurtured Heart from a place of um, empowered, wanting to know more. Was there a a sort of challenge yeah, or anything? Okay. So, so, the, so Nurtured Heart approach came a lot later. Um, I was born, just for your information, in 1960. I didn't come across Nurtured Heart approach until 19, until 2009, 2009. So I've had, I had had quite a history before that. Now, my history consisted as follows. I went and found myself and married a, a, a New Yorker who's possibly even more ADHD than I am, although in a different way. He's not as wild, although he's, he was wild when he was younger. I'm not wild. That, I'm not really all that wild either. I'm a bit wild, but he's much tamer than me now. Um, and then we went ahead and had nine Ferraris. No kidding. No kidding. Nine Ferraris. And not only that, but my first four were born within three and a half years. I was overwhelmed. Not only I was overwhelmed, but as they grew older, I read every single parenting book under the sun. Nothing worked for my kids. Nothing. They just read the books before me, so to speak, and, and were, were, were sabotaging anything I tried to do. So like Howard Glasser says, you know, if you're going to use a cucumber to knock down a wall, you'll just make a mess of the cucumber. And that's what I was doing. I was making big messes with cucumbers. Um, and um, you need the right tools for the job. Unfortunately, my youngest was about 12 or 13 by the time I discovered Nurtured Heart Approach. And I was so cliched and so, you know, like rigid about it that he wouldn't hear of it. He said, mommy, stop talking like that, you, see, you know, and he wouldn't hear of it. So I had to learn to be a lot more subtle. But anyway, it still had an impact on him. With the first eight, I made every mistake, and I'm, I'm tearing up a little bit here because I did it all wrong. I really did. I did it all wrong. I had no patience. I was ADHD. My kids were tough, but I don't know. I made my job a lot tougher being ADHD myself and, you know, an edge walker and all of that. And I had some wonderful, wonderful times with my kids. We'd play board games till three or four in the morning sometimes. I'd take them for long get lost drives and they'd tell me where to turn and would really get lost. We did lots and lots of amazing stuff. But, you know, in the back of my mind, I was, I was compensating for all the bad parent and incompetent parenting that I was doing. I was too, I was too, um, uh, what's it called? Um, what's it called? Punitive, way too punitive. 
my husband had also come from a difficult background and he was he was completely permissive because he didn't want his kids to go through what he went through. So he ended up to being mother and father and doing a, a lousy job of both. <laughs> and um, he did not approve of what I was doing, but you know, I blamed it all on him because I was resentful that he wasn't stepping in and being a disciplinarian. My husbands are supposed to be. So that was my mess of, of raising kids. But we did have, having said that, we did. they did know I loved them and we had some wonderful times together. And um, I did appreciate after a while. I thought, by the way, they were, uh, at least half of them were diagnosed with ADHD. The other half had it for sure, but I didn't bother with the diagnosis. Um, and with the, with, the, uh, with the older ones, I went through the the whole, even with the younger ones, with the whole business of medications, weren't so big into therapies in the 80s, which was lucky because they didn't sit with therapists every week for an hour. But they did have to be on medication, both for my sanity and, and for them just to be able to stay in school. And I really did believe there was kind of something wrong with them. You know, like, why are they like that? And why am I like this? And even as a kid, I remember, why didn't, you know, I'm a smart kid. Why can't I do well in school? And why does the keep, teacher keep saying I'm lazy and if I applied myself, I'd do better? Like, what on earth are you talking about? Or he. So, yeah, I did everything wrong, a few things right. So when my youngest, all the others are more or less out of the house or, you know, half out of the house, and my youngest comes along and, I, and I'm all excited about this new program and he's rejecting it outright. It wasn't a great start. So um, um, I was teaching. I was actually teaching in preschool. I hadn't taught, I hadn't really worked in preschool since I was a brand new teacher and it, was, it was a, wasn't a very good experience because I had no idea what I was doing. But at any rate, um, I, I, I got a job just teaching in three-year-old three -year preschool, three-year-old kinder as they call it here. And I was there for nine years. I started off in three-year-old, then I moved to four-year-old, which was more fun. But what I found over and over again was two amazing things. Number one, the brightest kids were the ones who were going to get in trouble in primary once they go into, 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 into real school. And number two, they're going to need all kinds of different therapies. They're going to need social skills therapy. They're going to need reading train, reading help. They're going to need academic help, even though they're so smart. They're going to have, have, some of them are going to have behavior problems. And I was very, very intrigued in trying to find out why it was the brightest kids and the most, you know, the most cautious. They were hard. They were difficult. Again, they were the difficult kids. And they were the ones I was attracted to. Um, so I started doing homework on education which led me to alternative education. So I'm coming full circle now. You know, as a teenager, I was saying that, you know, school's a waste of time. And here I'm coming full circle and realizing there's something very, very fundamental missing in education. So I first spent a full year while I was still working and started investigating alternative schools and looking into different models of education. Then in 2000, that was through the year of 2003, 2004. And 2005, I opened my own school. And it was for kids who didn't fit in the box. I had a lot of very difficult kids there. And everything was very relaxed. There was no uniforms. There, were no, there, were, there was no homework. The only rule which I insisted on, and that was basically what I was coming from to begin with, is that teachers have to treat students with respect and students, students have to teach, treat each other with respect. But I start with the teachers. If a teacher was not respectful to a child, they didn't belong in my school. You know, respect doesn't isn't taught, it's modelled. 
And unfortunately, you know, I'm very critical about respect. A lot of people would say this is a very respectful teacher. I'll say they're actually very manipulative very often. <laughs> but that's, that's another story. I'll try and stick to the point. I ran this school for four years. In 2008, there was a crash towards the end of the year. And we couldn't get enough funding to continue the school, so we had to close down. My husband used to raise $250,000 a year to keep that school in action. He just couldn't raise the money to pay the salaries of the teachers, so that was the end of the school. Um, we did have 33 stu students that went through the school and had a life after they, they, they left, which was wonderful. So when the school closed down, in 2009, one of my staff members gave me a book to read and it was called Transforming the Difficult Child. Um, just like you're eternally grateful to me, I'm eternally grateful to this woman who doesn't even really use the program. She just knew that I'd like it. And she's the one who lent me or gave me or lent me this book. And before I was a quarter way through the book, I was already on the phone to Howard Glasser asking him, where do I find out more? Because it was the keys to what wasn't working in my life with my kids, with my family, with even with my students. I was saying, that's what's missing. I'd never, it never occurred to me that children talk the language of relationship. They don't talk the language of logic. And when they do talk the language of logic, it's in order to get relationship. Which brings us back to Hondas and Ferraris. Tell me, tell me what that means. What does that mean? What is the language of relationship? When you say children speak the language of relationship, what is that? Great question. So the language of relationship is the language of see me, hear me, talk to me, make me feel like I am important. We're going back to Hondas and Ferraris for a minute, but I'm going to change the names. There are head kids and heart kids. Kids need two things besides food, clothing, and shelter. Of course they need food, clothing, and shelter. Now you're going to, you might tell me that love is the next in line and then discipline after that, whatever that means. I say no. I say the next in line is definitely relationship followed very closely by approval. Kids need to be approved of. Kids need relationship. They need intense connection with adults. What goes wrong in the classrooms? Why are some kids more difficult than others? Because they're not important as human beings. And especially if they're not doing what the teacher wants them to do. They're only so important if they're, if they're achieving results. If they do, if they're complying and they're getting good grades, or at least they're trying very hard, then they're important. If they're just being, they're not important. And if they're not important, then they need to make themselves important. There are two ways to make yourself important. One is by excelling to such an degree that you, degree that you um, the floor the teacher. Wow! When do you ever get a wow out of a teacher? Very rarely. Or by misbehaving. When you misbehave, you get lots of wows, but in, in negative language. Stop it. Don't. Leave him alone. Can you please just sit down for five minutes? Approval and relationships. So what happens? Our head kids make a calculation. They'd rather have the quiet approval and stay out of trouble. The heart kids, the Ferraris, don't make any 
calculations at all because they're heart kids. They don't make calculations. They go for the they go for the money. They go for the excitement. Then they don't think about what they're doing. So if the teacher hasn't noticed them in 10 or 15 minutes, they're going to misbehave, not because they want to, but because they're driven to. I give the example of a, of a of a um of a of a somebody who's an alcoholic. You're in a room full of people. You're, they're all sitting around the table, and there's drink, strong drink on the table, and no one's touching it. So this alcoholic is sitting there in the room, and the only thing on his mind is that drink, but he's too embarrassed to go and help himself. Eventually, the meeting is adjourned, and for for a while, you know, the meeting's adjourned for a while. They have a bit of a break, and everybody else is socialising, and the, and the alcoholic's still looking at the bottle. And eventually he's going to open the bottle and have a drink. Only one, and then another one, and then another one. And then he's, by the time that they, they reconvene, this alcoholic's in big trouble. And that's, that's, that works. This is real life. Okay, so some might have an easier time than others, but that's real life. And this is what's happening with these kids. They're sitting in class or at home trying to do the right thing and not being noticed for half an hour for one hour, for two hours. And they do little things like they poke their pencil into the kid in front of them or they, um, they take a toy away from their younger brother. Do little things so they get low-grade interaction. Leave him alone. Don't touch him. What if I, I could go on and on? Um, but it's not enough. They're not getting enough relationship and they're not, they're not getting any approval. Forget about approval. They're just not getting relationship. So then they start pushing a little bit harder, not because they want to, but because they've already tasted a little bit, just like the alcoholic just had a little drink. And once they've tasted a little bit, then it's very hard to turn back. And eventually they'll be kicked out of class. So here's what we're going to do, everybody. This has been amazing. I know you all want to hear more about the Ferrari and the Honda, you are going to have to wait till next week where we have part two of this episode and you will hear Sarah Bela and I continuing this incredible journey of awakening of the answer for the Honda and the Ferrari and the brain and heart child. I will see you then.